Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question to know. David Lean. And you were the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado VHA? Clay Hayes. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. You made a point when you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in. That's how I got into trail running. Some people are just wired that way. So Lee, have you ever had something so crazy happen to you in the woods that you brought it back to camp, you tried to tell people about, and they just didn't believe you? I have, yeah, a few times, and it's hard. Like, how do you make people believe something that is actually crazy and actually happened but sounds so ridiculous? Well, I'll tell you. I got the perfect situation for you right here. Here at Seek Outside on this podcast, we are going to be doing a blog writing contest. We want you, our listeners, to write a blog post about the craziest outdoor experience that you have ever had. Yeah, so we're going to be doing a podcast on December 1st where we will pick the top three and read them. And we're going to be picking the winner on that podcast. So you got to listen to make sure that you've won. It's going to be live. And guess what? The best part is... The winner is going to have their story published on our website, as well as they are going to win a Seek Outside Silex tent. That's awesome. Pretty dope. Yeah. So to win this, we're going to base it on three kind of judging criteria. Um, The craziness of the story itself. Is it life-threatening? Did you have a close encounter with wildlife? Did you have a close encounter with aliens? Uh, Was there, there some sort of natural phenomena that happened? Stuff like that. Also, believability. Um, Because we're asking for crazy stories, we want to see photos. Now, these don't have to be professional photos that you've taken with a $3,000 camera. They can be scans from a disposable camera for all we care. We just want to see something, right? Some proof. Uh, And then lastly, writing finesse. Um, So we're talking, you know, full sentences, the whole nines. They don't have to be super professional, but um, readable for sure. Exactly. We're not asking for Cormac McCarthy, but just something that, you know, we'll grab a listener and be able to live on our website forever. Um, Okay, guys, if you want to submit your crazy story, make sure you send the story um, to an email address. That email address is going to be podcast at seekoutside.com. In that email, make sure that the subject is believe it or not, and then your name in parentheses after that. And we will take a peek at all your guys' entries. And again, December 1st, we're going to be doing a semi-live podcast announcing the winner, giving away a Silex. So make sure that you, uh, you write it and you write it good. All right, guys. Enjoy the podcast. Can't wait. Well, so we got the boys from 40 Mile Air here with us on the Seek Outside podcast. And uh, you guys are kind of coming to an end with your season, huh? 
Yeah, fortunately, uh, the weather, the weather uh, decided to pretend like it's winter, and but we got most everyone out of the field, so that's a good thing. Yeah, you guys got like a bunch of snow up there recently, huh? Yeah, about four or five inches today. Yeah, it's still snowing right now. It's coming down pretty good. So how does that change things when you guys want to get people out of the field? Because you're landing people, what, 100 miles north of where you're at or so? Well, both sides, I guess. Right, yeah. It, it becomes really problematic with snow um, because uh, <laughs> we, you know, a lot of places we go, we don't have a lot of room and, uh, you know, the snow obviously makes for nil breaking and slows down your takeoffs and all that kind of stuff and it's slick and you're sliding around so yeah it's, it's a bad bad situation uh, with snow so i'm just gonna guess i mean we've not not ryan but myself and owen nathan jeff we all flew with you guys earlier this year and i was uh really surprised at all the logistics and communication coming from never having done a fly-in hunt I was naive. I was thinking like, well, they're going to fly us pretty much to our spot where it's going to be relatively continuous. But you guys are constantly shuffling around stuff, um, putting gas in one plane, taking gas from another plane or airplane fuel and stuff. And then you have the weather to deal with. And out of your season, like how many days do you probably just lose to to weather related incidents well you're a little little broken there but i think you, basically you're asking how how, uh, how often the weather offsets us or puts us out totally of um from accomplishing anything yeah every year is a little different i guess uh i think this year we had uh, maybe two complete weather days where we pretty much didn't get anything done uh, which is a pretty good year. Um, some years we've we've had it worse than that. The worst year we actually ever had was in 04, and that was because of forest fires. Um, that you know we had stretches of four and five days where we couldn't get anything done. That was uh, that was the most difficult. But typically, you know, we're in interior Alaska, so we don't get horrible weather. And if it does, it usually lasts a day. Um, so we're kind of blessed in that in that respect, where it usually doesn't go on for you know a week at a time or anything like that. All camps are not created equal either, though. So you get you know we might be able to fly every day, but there might be a specific spot that you can't get to for yeah <laughs> four or five days or whatever. I know a couple of years ago we had these guys and they just the fog. I mean, we could get right to the ridge but they were just in the fog and the wind for i don't know five days straight and we just couldn't couldn't get in there so um but we could get a lot of other places so yeah we we experienced that too up with uh, brooks ranger um you know because they kind of gave us the choice you know they showed us a map of all right we got these lakes we know the caribou are kind of going to be in this area not 100 percent sure but this general area you'll you'll be good and they basically were like which lake do you want to go to and the first lake we we picked you know was just kind of like throwing a dart at a wall 
But we we're like, oh, let's try that one. And they're like, well, actually, that one's a little bit too windy. I don't know if you want to be super exposed. But then, like, we ended up flying to a lake, like, you know, three or four miles to the west, and it was fine. So it was, it was very interesting. You know, you never really think about that kind of stuff, uh, obviously, with commercial airliners or whatever. But it seems like you really got to know the land if you're a bush pilot and know exactly, okay, this ridge is going to be windy this time of year, this ridge we can land on. Um, do you guys just study? I mean, how many days a year do you guys fly? Uh, well, we fly all the time pretty much. I mean, um, obviously not every day of the year, but we, you know, we got, uh, we got business operations, flying operations, you know, every you know every day of the week throughout the year so um you know when it comes to hunt yeah. season the busy season you know it's seven days a week all the time pretty much so um yeah i mean i guess i guess the thing on that is you know there's a lot of places we don't use anymore uh yeah because you figure out that <laughs> that's a problem <laughs> of getting in there and out of there consistently well, how well do you guys have to know, like, the mountains you're flying into? I imagine that you know them extremely well. Like, I know the mountains around my house, you know, pretty much I can navigate myself between the mountains, whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, but it seems like it's just such a vast area and that it would be pretty difficult. Um, it's like you're not always flying above the mountains. You're kind of flying through them a lot of the times, it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, obviously, you know, uh, the more knowledge you have of the land and the, the surrounding area, the more, I mean, it's, it's just the more beneficial it is for conducting operations, I guess. Um, um, but you know, I mean, if the weather's good, it's not that big a deal. It's when the weather's bad, that it probably is more, you know, more of a benefit. Um, to be knowledgeable about that, about the local terrain. Right, right. Well, we we have to learn all the drainage, where they go, and then all the passes. Um, and uh, you know, after you've been flying this country for fifteen or twenty years, or <clears throat> even if you do it all the time, even less than that, you know, ten years, um, especially if you've got a a good uh mind for that kind of stuff then you you know it i mean it's a lot of area but the, there's not that many <clears throat> major drainages and 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 if you learn those and pay attention to all that then you you uh you can navigate a whole, around a whole lot better and then gps really helps i mean when i first started flying we didn't have gps <laughs> um it helps us but it also it also is a is a negative because it helps a lot of people that don't have any idea what the country is used to be. We rarely in those days, we rarely saw anybody else up there because if they did, they'd get lost. Um, uh, a lot of them, <laughs> um, nowadays things that's all changed. Um, but, but, but still, if you know the land, you can fly a lot better and you know, you know how the drainages work and you know how, where the passes are, you can fly, in the country when a lot of other people can't that aren't familiar no matter what kind of gps they have 
That makes sense. So, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the drainages and the passes. Now, you've been flying that country for like forty years or so, right, Leif? Yeah, I started flying when I was seventeen, and I'm fifty eight now. So, yeah, and and seriously, really flying that country up there since the early nineties. Uh, you know, every day type of thing, all hunting season. Um, so, yeah, I think this was my twenty eighth season flying hunters full time. Wow. That's a that's a lot of how many takeoff and landings do you end up doing on most days? <laughs> I never keep we never keep track of that, but it just depends upon the day, you know. I mean if you're doing short hops to somewhere you do a whole bunch. But um uh you know, if you're doing long runs and you do a lot less. I, I got I have no idea on that. Um up to thirty up to 30 on a busy day wow. easy yeah that's a lot of takeoff and landing so um how did you get into it did you just want to fly now i know like i talked to jake's family you know jake you're from a flying family that has done similar stuff before right did you just want to fly life and that was were you from a flying family and stuff as well or yeah i i, I was or am my um, my dad was a pilot um, before I was born, um, and had airplanes before I was born, and and um, he was a guide, and then he he later was a chief pilot for Forty Mile Air. Um, so yeah, I grew up around airplanes, just like like Jake did. Now you always hear you always hear these uh, these stories, like when we were coming back, right? Um, we went to Fairbanks. We flew out of Fairbanks. I bought a book in Fairbanks to read. I was doing all this traveling right on the way back. And there was a, a chapter in the book on bush pilots, right? And it had, like, some of these things, like this guy, you know, landed on this ridge or whatever because he had a problem. And then he, you know, hiked out. And then the next spring he came in after teaching himself how to weld and, you know, fixed his plane and built a runway and took off, right? Um, which kind of dovetails into, one, some of those stories were pretty incredible, right? Just the resolve of the people, right? Um, you, yeah. you hear of these unplanned landings like Jake, you loaned us some of your fishing line from your emergency kit. How many times or how often is there really unplanned landings or forced landings? Well, in those days, probably the book you're reading is probably from the thirties, um, twenties, thirties, those days it was fairly common, but nowadays it's really, really unusual. I think I've only had to make an unplanned landing once in my career. Um, you know, as far as, you know, my engine was going gunny sack and I had to land. Um, so it's, it's pretty rare. I, I, I see it, see it off and on, but if you've got good maintenance, <laughs> which is, is the number one thing you better start with, or, or you're going to have real difficulties. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly, fairly rare these days. I was going to ask you, um, so is that more because the technology and the planes and like the mechanics have gotten better? Is that due to GPS? Um, I was noticing when we were flying, you know, we were still flying planes from 1957. 
Um, what is it that makes those or what is it that made those planes back in the day need to, um, you know, make emergency landings? And, and why is nowadays uh, taking a bush plane in Alaska so much safer? Well, I think it is, is it is metallurgy and technology um, and maintenance standards, I guess. Uh, the engines, I mean, they're a lot of pretty much similar to a lot of what they had in those days, other than, you know, a lot less radial engines and more opposed. But the, the metallurgy and the, the types, you know, in the valves and the valve trains and and all of that stuff has improved dramatically. Uh, we've got better magnetos. Everything is is, is better than those days. I mean, uh, things last longer. Um, things are more reliable. Uh, they haven't made the strides in the aviation engines that they have like in car motors. I think it's the FAA, you know, kind of limits that it or slows down progress with all of their, <clears throat> all of their restrictions. And, it, and, and so I don't think, you know, you can't just, do things you you have to you have to um, have it proven before you can do anything um, as far as changes go to an airplane but there's been a lot of changes from those days and, and it's added to the safety considerably and reliability of them uh, they're a pretty simple motor and that that adds to reliability too air cooled you don't have a, a you know a cooling system uh, you don't have a water cooling system uh, so they're fairly simple but um yeah, some of that I think technology, metallurgy, that sort of stuff. And the like you said, the GPS too, though. And the uh, there's you know probably not as much vastness here in like there was back then. Yeah. You know now you know you could make it within a couple hours. You got a GPS. If the weather's going bad, you can make it somewhere. And back then, you know, no GPS, long major distances between any kind of people or infra infrastructure or somewhere to land somewhere to be and uh you know that played into a major if you read a lot of those books you know a lot of those guys just land and had to wait for weather for two weeks but the, the element of time is just totally changed you know if you think about now if you sat and waited on weather at some place you didn't want to be for a day, two days, an unplanned place. That's, that's a long time <laughs> versus back then, you know, it was, it'd be weeks or something, you know, cause nowadays they can get somebody in there to help you out and just all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, you can get on your in reach and say, Hey, what's the weather doing there? You know, what's <laughs> this? You just got all the information, you know, and when you're, uh, you know, back then, nobody knew where you was. You're just sitting on some river or some place somewhere. Nobody knows where you are. You don't know what the weather is besides what you can see. And, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah, you probably have a lot better weather data now. Oh, yeah. And I, I went flying a few days ago with a, a friend of mine from the rescue team that I used to be on the rescue team with. And he teaches um, mountain rescue um high angle rescue, stuff like that. Um, and he recently got his pilot's license and we were just kind of shooting, you know, talking and he said, Hey, come on, I'll take you out. You know, and he had this little iPad and on the iPad, it showed you a, all the landing strips that were around, right. That were registered. And it was like, wow, there's a ton of landing strips. Then it showed, it also showed you like, 
if you lost complete power at that moment, how far you could make it in every direction, right? Right. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of technology going on there on that on that front. So, you guys primarily deal with caribou, sheep, moose hunters, right? I guess bear as well. Um, switching off a little bit more to the hunter thing, what is the most common thing you hear hunters say that they wish they would have taken on a trip? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I, you know, I maybe yeah, maybe like you though, you know, it's like when you start talking caribou, it's the unpredictability where you're going to end up, and um. You know, people that end up high, they usually have a fishing pole, and people that don't have a fishing pole usually end up next to somewhere they can fish. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I mean, we had a couple. <laughs> we had a couple guys that uh, bought some. They'd never been up here, and they bought some Walmart sleeping bags for about ten bucks a piece, and uh, we picked them up. I think almost 20 it might have been like uh 30 hours after we dropped them off and uh they just froze they got their animals but they they froze and they were done they're ready to get out so uh they were definitely wishful for some good gear but uh i don't know what are you yeah not too often mostly it's people bring a lot more stuff that they never use um yeah and say, yeah, boy, I figured out I don't need to bring all this stuff, you know. I, I imagine, yeah, like waders, maybe when they end up alongside of a creek instead of up on a ridge um, where they could have used, like, glacier socks or something to cross the creek. Maybe that would be one. Um, not too often do we get that, though. But, you know, all pretty much all of our hunters have been here before, and uh, they know what to expect. So that's... Uh, we might not see as much of that. Um, as some of reporters, they might see more of the first-timers that are like, oh, we really should have brought, you know, like, yeah, in our group, we really wish we'd have brought a little Tinkara rod because there was grayling all over the place. Uh, right. And I wish we would have brought a better digiscoping setup because we had wolverines on one of the carcasses, you know. And then after that, we took too much gear as you guys alluded to. Um, but it was kind of that we we weren't quite certain where we were going to go or be, you know, so we did have bug stuff and things like that, that and we didn't have any problem with bugs, so we didn't even use it. So, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, next year, you, the problem is, you know, next year we could go to the same spot and you'd have different weather, same time frame, and you could have bugs or whatever, you know, I just, yeah. It's sometimes it's hard to tell. Or we could head up there trying to find the caribou and they moved over. Put you on the Charlie River or something, you know, so it could be different. Yeah. Uh, when you guys have hunters uh, or people that need to come out early, is it mostly due to weather or are there other things that, uh, you know, do you ever find that people just are in way too deep for their gear or anything like that. What's, what's the most common reason why you have to pull people out early? Well, I mean, like I, I guess kind of same deal, you know, most of our people have been here before they kind of know what to expect, but I would say that, uh, 
it's I'd say a very very small percentage of people go their actual scheduled time to uh, that they they you know if they schedule eight ten days whatever I'm, I mean there's very few that stay in there that whole duration most people just come out because they've tagged out and they're done and they're ready to go or whatever but um, I you know some people you know just back to the technology technology thing you know now people get the in reach weather and they see bad weather coming and they want to get out before the bad weather comes or whatever well yeah we were advised that uh when we left you know that uh the weather was going to start taking a turn you know after that day you know and that it probably was a good time to get out since we had already tagged out right right but there's you know there is you know you run into very you run into rare occasional things you know we had a we had a guy this year. He's hunted with us a lot, and his wife was sick, and so he had to come out. They came out early. Uh, you know, you just run into everyday problems sometimes. So it happens. Shit happens. Yeah. yeah. So, so what? Go ahead. Oh, I was I was just gonna kind of switch gears to actual transport type questions because um, that was one thing that we found out um was a little we weren't prepared for uh just as far as like you know taking all the meat out taking you know antlers and skulls out um what's the number one issue that you guys run into as far as transport like getting meat and hides and skulls out of the field well probably the um you know the the biggest thing is that um, people need to realize that it's you know the the laws and the rules and the regulations and the knowing the area knowing what's required is is up to the hunter themselves not up to us you know we are just the transporter um, so sometimes you know um, people get the false sense that you know we're gonna point them in all the right directions on that kind of stuff on you know on certain uh you know rules like making sure you bring your meat out before your antlers or making sure you know you leave evidence of sex attached to the actual meat um all that kind of stuff you know i mean we're we're we'll help you as much as we can but that's that's really not it's not our responsibility any of that kind of stuff by a legal sense is not our responsibility. Um, so people run into a few problems there. Um, as far as us, the thing, the biggest, probably the number one biggest thing we deal with that people don't handle well is, um, not caping out their, their, uh, the head, um, you know, leaving like the lower jaw and having all the hide and everything on the head because we, we have to, transport the antlers out um on the outside of the aircraft you know tied on and if you got this big cape on there dangling in the wind it's not it's not safe or you know it's just it's not it's not something we can really do so that's probably the biggest thing that we run into on a constant basis um for hauling that kind of stuff so so 
for you guys also have fairly strict weight limits, right? Um, uh-huh. Do you ever find people are like, oh no, just just let me slide on this uh, weight limit? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say it's like any rule in the world. People are always trying to find, trying to skirt the ragged edge of it, and they're always trying to find a way, the best way around it. If I give you I fifty bucks, will you let me? Oh, oh man. Yeah, you, you you can't imagine. Uh, but yeah, uh, I yeah, people are always they're always trying, they're always pushing it. Uh, I guess, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there's lots of different angles that we've seen. I mean, they, you know, people show up with a with a coat that's about you know looked like the Michelin Man. Stopped in there, or then lately we've seen. Well, they started showing up with these um, gun gun cases that are gigantic, and and finally last year I think it was I went to load this gun case, and the gun case itself was as heavy as the guy's pack. Um, he had like can, cans of soup in there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we had, we're, and then and then some people try to show up with a fanny pack that they sell. They'll put in their lap and. Yeah, I don't know. You know, like Jake says, almost everybody now is repeat or are coming with a repeat guy. So most of them are pretty reasonable, and we have very little issues. But we, we, I've I've seen seen it all over the years as far as that goes. Oh, I'm sure people stuffing anything that they can. They got like seven mountain houses in their pants, and then they got their their food, their bars and stuff, and all their pockets. Uh, I'm yeah. sure you've seen it all. Taped onto their leg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is that, can you guys notice a big difference? Like I'm just saying, for instance, and I don't want to, you know, have you guys expose something here, but uh, like if it were 60 pounds instead of the 50 pounds, um, is that something that you notice in the plane, its ability to take off and, or is it kind of just like you got to set it at 50 pounds to account for other things? Yeah, I guess both, uh, all of the above, probably. Uh, you know, the the actual baggage limitation on the Super Cub um, is 50 pounds behind the seat. Um, so that, that's, uh, you know, that's probably the first place, uh, you know, first where it starts there. Um, you know, we have... We have a little bit of extra baggage room that you can haul a little bit more weight, but we gotta haul our own stuff as well, you know, sleeping bag, all that stuff. But yeah, any amount of weight, man, if you haul a if you if you got, you know, a couple hundred pound guy and his fifty pounds versus a two hundred and fifty pound guy and his fifty pounds, you can you notice it. Uh, you know, every every little bit of weight in that thing, uh, you know, as you as you you guys probably know or Kevin knows, you know, it's a pretty small plane and, um, and that's, you know, staying 50 pounds and, and trying to be able to stay a little lighter is what allows us to, um, you know, go into a lot of these places and, um, and try not to totally terrorize our airplanes. You know, they still get beat up pretty bad. Of, uh, um, you know, we still end up with a lot of extra maintenance because of hunting season type flying. So the more, the more weight you add, the more that stuff compounds and adds up. And, you know, it's, 
it reduces safety for getting in and out and for and for the wear and tear on your airplanes too so yeah so it, it makes it like technically like harder to get into certain places and stuff too like i can put you in this premium place if you're at 50 pounds and you weigh 150 but um a 270 person with 50 pounds they might have a couple less choices yeah yeah i mean uh you know we got to be able to try and we got to have places we can reasonably get in and out of you know otherwise people are not not going to like us you know because if we can only get in under certain conditions but there's there you could land a tons of places empty with no passenger no weight whatever that you could never get in and out of hauling a passenger in their weight so yeah yeah i mean basically yeah that's that is the gist of it it, it does it does affect our decisions occasionally on yeah. where we put people you're right yeah do you guys how many no fly days do you guys typically have during a hunting season and, um, like would, if somebody were to book a flight with you guys, a trip next year, would you recommend having a certain amount of days on either side of their scheduled trip, uh, just in case you have to go in a day earlier or, or go in a day late? Um, yeah, I mean, um, the, the early thing is always, um, you know, if you're here and you're ready and we got time and you want to go early, I mean, we'll, we usually always try just to take advantage of good weather while it's there and available. You know, we'll, we'll put people in early or something like that. But the main thing is, is yeah, booking, you know, I mean, is planning uh, on the back half because if you, you know, um, you can always kind of change your outdate with us, but if you're two days delayed going in you could push your trip two days back if you wanted or if the main thing is getting delayed on the way coming out you know and um that always gets people you know you always got to have a little bit of a buffer time because even say the day say we get you out the same day you know but say we don't get you out till right at dark and then you know you got a day in here and then you got a day to get back and and um and probably the biggest thing I've seen people do is they call, they'll, they'll be scheduled to come out, but then they'll move, they'll call us and want to come out early and we'll tell them, well, okay, we should be able to get you tomorrow. And so then they'll, while they're in the field, they call and change their flights. And then the next day the weather's bad and we can't get them. And so now they've just, they've totally screwed themselves, you know, and they've changed their tickets once. Now they're not going to make their new tickets and stuff like that. So it's pretty important to have a little bit of buffer on the back end. That's for sure. Um, you know, so you're not changing things around too much. Yeah, we didn't have a return flight. As far as Owen and I, we didn't have return flights booked. Um, we just figured when we got out, we would um, get the closest one we could. And once we found out what the price of hotels was in Fairbanks, we decided to <laughs> just yeah. stay at the airport until we could hop on a plane. So, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
but yeah i mean it's all you 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 always you got to figure at least a day you know if you you know if you're planning to come out today out of the field um then you got you know you want to at least plan the, the you know the very earliest i would even consider having a flight would be late tomorrow night you know late late like you know a red eye tomorrow night or something basically the next day that would that that would be as tight as i would want to schedule it because it is pretty unpredictable mm-hmm. so. definitely is um so the rest of the year outside of hunting season it's not like you guys are just sitting around watching um daytime tv you guys are still out there flying is there a lot of recreationalists you're flying in or are you doing stuff for fish and game? Because I'd read that some of their caribou surveys, they do flyover counts or whatever. Or what other types of flying are you guys doing during the rest of the year? Well, we kind of got a little variety of everything. Yeah, we got um, we have scheduled mail runs every day of the week year-round. Um, and... We got a medevac plane. We got a couple helicopters. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, just kind of uh, random charters, I guess. You know, just people, like, there's some um, guiding operations and some people that live, you know, remotely around. And so we, um, you know, they'll call for charters or sometimes we'll fly horse feed in or sometimes we'll fly fuel in and, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, but then, yeah, we do, we do do a lot of work for fish and game. We do a lot of the, a lot of the, um, counts and, or, um, tracking and stuff. And then, and then a lot of the captures with the helicopters too. So, um, we always, there's a, it goes in spurts. Like, I mean, we, we all, we all been busting it for seven days a week and, I think right around the 4th of October or something, we got a week straight for a helicopter and a cub, you know, and so that's uh, another, you know, a lot, lot of, uh, another lot of work there. And that happens most every year, um, that time of year. And then in November, we'll do moose surveys. And in the spring, in the February, April, we'll do wolf surveys and captures and things like that. So a lot, a lot of fishing game work, yes. Yeah. Do you guys ever do like Aurora tours? And do you get a solid um, boost in tourism in the winter for like Aurora viewing and stuff like that? Because I know Brooks Range did. Right. Yeah they they are a little more on that stuff. Um, we we don't really have much of that around Toke. The thing about Toke where we're at here, I mean, uh, it's a through fare for Canada, and that's that's pretty much that's pretty much the draw of Toke. So, um, as far as us in the tourism industry, basically, basically the big tourism industry for us is hunters. That's about it. Everything else is pretty, uh, what I would call local, local to, you know, state to the state to people here. So, so one more question for you guys. Um, would you guys ever consider moving to like Hawaii or anything and doing doing charter flights out there? Or are you guys through and through Alaskans? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't see myself being in Hawaii, but uh, um, I know Leif won't be in Hawaii. So, 
he he left by the way so if you didn't catch that he's gone but uh yeah no i don't i don't i don't see that happening but you know i mean it's not sometimes it'd be nice to uh maybe you know disappear for a month or a couple you know it's nice to disappear for a couple weeks in the winter and break it up a little bit because uh you know our long season is winter that's mostly what we we live with but it's all good it's uh yeah it's it's uh it's kind of a you know i don't maybe that's an arguable point but it's kind of a free place you know you kind of live in toke and you do your thing and you don't worry about too much so winter's kind of like flushing the toilet you know Uh. all the all the bad stuff leaves so (laughs) i was just wondering man because you know we were we were there in freaking august and it was snowing and it was it was yeah. nice because it was ninety eight degrees here in Grand Junction, but uh, it right. was also nice to get back and not have to be wearing you know a down jacket, thermal underwear every day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably the, probably the biggest thing for me is um, you know there there's some other places in the in in America, I guess uh, that you know have some pretty cool backcountry wilderness type things, but um nothing nothing on the on this kind of scale you know to have to have an airplane and jump in your airplane and you know fly 100 miles and you, you don't see anyone else and you call it your backyard um you know you just can't get that anywhere else and uh and that's that would be hard to get that'd be hard to uh uh live without now now that once you have it it's hard it'd be hard to go back um how far are you guys booked uh well you know we only do one year at a time okay uh we we don't uh we don't book multiple years out um it's uh yeah yeah thanks bob that hey that can go too if you want yeah thanks um anyway don't no, sorry about that but we just book uh we just book one year at a time you know you get a lot of it, it, you know i mean if you book three years out and you want to raise your prices uh you know because you know like insurance tripled like which is actually kind of the case right now insurance has gone skyrocketed um you kind of you know I mean, you don't want to book somebody three years from now and then change the price for one. And two, you might not even, you know, three years from now, there couldn't, could not be a caribou season up here. Uh, you, you don't know, you know, you don't know the sustainability of some of that stuff. And, um, you know, in three years, you might, uh, might only want to haul two moose hunters and not instead of 20 or whatever the case may be. So, so we just do one year at a time and uh, just keep and rebook that year. So, Well, that's awesome. Um, now you have a sheep hunt coming up. I want to wish you good luck on that. I do, yeah. And I'm, I'm excited. I appreciate that. I'm excited to test out the, the new pack, put it to good use. I'm hoping that the weather shapes up a little bit because if, if the trend keeps up now, it'll be like two feet of snow by then. <laughs> a winter sheep hunt yeah <laughs> so anyway it, it'll probably it'll probably uh it'll probably warm up a little bit before then so 
Well, awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Jay. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for coming up. Appreciate what you guys have done for us. So, Awesome. Take care. Bye. Have a good one, Jay. Thanks, guys. We'll see ya. All right.